0: And this is TOCO U.S. Brand Manager Ian Harvey. I'm here today with Allison Owen Bradley. Allison won multiple World Cup races, finished second in the famous Kolen Kong Ski Festival race, competed in two Olympic Games and three World Championships and won eight U.S. National Championships. After competing, Allison went on to coach for 12 years in Sun Valley, Idaho, very successfully and helped develop many U.S. National Team skiers and elite juniors. This exceptionally successful ski racing coach is also known for being a pioneer for women's cross-country skiing in the United States. Allison won what was at the time was billed as as the inaugural Women's Nordic World Cup, which was held at Mount Telemark in Wisconsin. Allison also competed with the boys in 1966 Junior National Championships because at the time there were no girls races. There were the next year. Allison splits her time between Bozeman, Montana and Boise, Idaho, where she and her husband have a small farm. I have done interviews with Bill Cope, Jim Galanis, Muffy Ritz, and Jim Fredericks, for example, all of whom competed at an elite level in the 70s and continued to inspire and influence for a great many years since, including today even. This interview was in line with those others. Allison was not just, and I say just in quotes, a pioneer for women's ski racing, but is also an exceptional athlete and coach. She has a sharp intellect and her perspective is one that you do not want to miss. Our Mm -hmm. community should know Allison's story and treasure her accomplishments and contributions. Allison, thank you so much for making yourself available for this interview. I am excited to honor you and hopefully expose the American skiing public to your experiences as well as to your expertise.
1: Thank you, that was was very nice. Makes me feel good.
0: Well, you are special and you should feel good.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. It, it, uh, saying all those dates really dates me.
0: <laughs> um, can we start out by please, if you wouldn't mind telling us where you grew up and how you started Nordic scheme?
1: Sure. Well, I was born in Kalispell, Montana. And soon after my parents moved to Wenatchee, Washington, where my dad worked for Alcoa aluminum and I, my dad was a mountaineer. He loved the mountains, skiing, climbing, hiking. He was on search and rescue, um, for guys that were lost and just a really fun outdoor guy. And I had, there were five of us in my family. I was a second child. And, uh, so we just, always moved. My my, I, my dad bought me a unicycle. We had a lot of climbing stuff around. And um, so I grew up just really active outside. And we alpine skied. Um, and we were good at it. But with five children, uh, my dad thought it was too expensive. Plus, he really didn't like the ambiance of it. And So we Alpine skied, but they kept asking us to be in the race team in Wenatchee. And my dad's like, "Mm -mm." mm-mm. And so when we saw this little ad in the paper and my dad saw it and it was only a couple inches and it said cross-country skiing thing starting. And my dad knew I loved to run and, and play soccer and stuff. And so he said, hey, why don't you try that? And I'm like, yeah, I'll try it. So this man named Herb Thomas uh, had gone, he was a four-way skier at Middlebury, good, good racer there and um, went into the biathlon unit in Alaska and when he got out of that, he came back to Wenatchee. His family had an apple brokerage there, you know Wenatchee's big on fruit growing and so he came back and he started a cross country program and that's what my dad saw. And so my brothers and sister, I have one sister and we all went down there and it was after dinner on a golf course, ambient light from the streetlights. And oh my gosh, I just absolutely fell in love with it. The very first time I did it, it's like, whoa, this is so cool. And of course we didn't have good equipment. Um, I don't know, we were in our blue jeans and like no hat. It was like We didn't know anything about it, but Herb was great. He was a really good technical skier. So he was my first example of what this sport looked like. And and, uh, he ran that program for some years, but he had a young family and a a big business to run. So after a while, he couldn't do it. And my dad took it over. and um, my dad didn't know anything about cross-country skiing. So he, my dad's an engineer, uh, or he was. And, and so he studied all about the waxes. He studied about how to groom trails. And, and uh, he found some land just outside of Wenatchee that we could put a ski trail on. And that's how we started. And, and uh, I didn't realize anything i was like 12 13 years old just out there having a ball and so i would go in the races and and uh do well and i have this really funny scrapbook of things i wrote and and in there it says you know my biggest competition is dean gill and i'm gonna get him in the next race and and so I was just racing the boys because my sister was younger than me and she was in a you know younger class. So I was really the only girl in there. And I didn't really think about that much because I was kind of the only girl that did a lot of things. Uh, I never saw any other women out hiking, climbing, any of the stuff we did. Um, but my dad was so great. He would take us out into the Cascade Mountains with our backpacks overnight, sometimes weekends, sometimes longer, like three, or four or five days. And we'd find snowfields up high and we'd ski on them. We'd set jumps. We'd, we'd just have fun on our skis and then go for some hikes and runs high in the Cascades. And gosh, to me, it was like, okay, this fits me. And that's how I got started. And then I skied well enough, and I was a good athlete, so I made that boys team, and I was 13. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of the start of it for me. I just totally fell in love with it. It was like, okay, so I'll tell you this one quick story that when I was young, I my older brother and I were outside. It's vivid memory, um, and and everything I did, I just did with a passion when it was a physical thing and I was jumping rope and I was really good at jumping rope. And, and I was setting a new record and of no misses. And so I'm jumping, jumping and my brother goes, why are you trying so hard? And I'm like, cuz I'm going to the Olympics someday and I'm getting ready. Yeah. And I was probably eight or nine years old and we didn't have a TV. I don't know how in the world I even knew about the Olympics but I knew I was going to do it and I didn't even really know about Nordic skiing. So, but that was, I, I just came here with that mission and um, it was really clear to me. So that was kind of my start. Cool. So
0: Jack, <laughs> your father's name was Jack Owen. I yes. I mentioned that because obviously he, he's played a big part role here and Herb Thomas was the coach that started that program and had a great influence on you. Yes. When you were 13 in 1966, you qualified for the Pacific Northwest Team for Junior Nationals. Yes. As there were, there was no Junior National Championship at that time for for girls. You competed in the boys race. You qualified and competed for the boys. Um, I heard a story about the organizers requiring an ambulance on site. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear about that story and what it was like being the only girl there and competing with the boys at Junior Nationals in 1966.
1: Yeah, well, you know, and that is a long time ago. And uh, my memory, you know, that, that's a long time. So I'll tell you what I remember. Um, just a few weeks before I qualified, there was another competition for the JC, the JCs, uh, Junior Chamber of Commerce was, was putting on in the Midwest. And I had gone in that qualifying with my brothers and I qualified for it. And, it, and uh, they wouldn't let me go because I was a girl. And I remember laying on the couch, just having a conniption fit, crying, screaming, like, brr, you know, why can't I go? And my mom's like, look, just cool it, you know? So anyway, I couldn't go to that one. So then I qualified for this Junior Nationals in Winter Park, Colorado. And I'm like, and they said I could go. And it was like, yes. Um, and I really didn't really even know what junior nationals were. I just knew it was a trip to Colorado. I got out of school. I'd, I'd done something good. i you know, I'd skied fast. And, and uh, I was in my, and Herb Thomas took us there. And uh, there were people like Lyle Nelson who a lot of people know still um, on that team. And and yeah, we went down to Colorado. I took my alpine skis. I loved alpine skiing too. Herb was a great alpine skier and, and we alpine skied a lot and, and skied the, tr- the cross-country trail too. And I roomed with Patty Boydston who was a, she, she's a friend of mine from McCall still. And she was on the Alpine team there. And so I roomed with her at the junior national. So it didn't feel like I was the only girl because the Alpine girls were there. And I went in the race and um, Peter Ashley showed me the results the other day. I hadn't, I didn't remember them, but I actually got last (laughs) and I think I blocked that out of my memory because I'm like, no way, I didn't get last. But yep, there it is. And but I didn't need the ambulance, so that was a cool thing. Um, so, so the ambulance thing. My
0: understanding was, in order for you to be allowed to race, they they weren't they weren't going to have the ambulance there anyway. My understanding was the ambulance was at the finish line specifically in case the experience of the race was too much for you <laughs> specifically. And that's why they had the ambulance at the finish line. Is that your recollection?
1: Yes, that's what I was told. And uh, I think it's kind of true because women weren't running marathons. They weren't doing these kind of endurance sports. And I think it made men nervous. And, you know, if they said yes to some young girl and then, you know, their ovaries fell out or something, that would be terrible. (laughs) So, um, so.
0: (laughs) So the next year... Did you, you went back to world to the uh, Junior National Championships next year in cross-country skiing? Yes. And the next year, there was a Women's Junior National Championship. Yes. How satisfying was that? Did you, did you have any awareness at the time that you, that had something to do with you? And were you satisfied? Or was that just not something you were really thinking about?
1: You know, I, I wasn't really thinking about it. But I did realize it at a certain level that, all oh, right, you know, girls, women can do this now with each other. And that was fun because, um, so I do remember thinking it was great that other girls are gonna be there doing this with me. And it was was just an era of things breaking open for girls. And like Ian in my high school or in my junior high and high school, we didn't have track for Mm -hmm. girls. And I remember my friend, who was also a cross-country skier with me, we went to the to the principal and asked if we could start Girls Track. And he's like, oh no, you need an advisor and, and we don't have any teachers that wanna do it. And, and so we asked her mom to be our advisor because she was a part-time typing teacher at the high school. And so she said, yeah, sure. So she, my friend and I started the high school track so for me and skiing starting and all these things skiing was just another thing that was starting to be available for young girls to do and I loved cross-country skiing so it was really exciting that yeah you know it was going to be a thing for girls to do and when I went the next year it was amazing how many good girl skiers were there because Alaska had a good program. And so those guys just cleaned up. And then the East had good programs and the Midwest had some. So it wasn't like I was the only young female skiing in our country. It was just hadn't broken open for competitions nationally yet. So when I went, I was young still, you know, 14 or something. So I wasn't winning. you know, those Alaskans were kicking butt and, and it was fun to see. It's like, whoa, okay. So your points will
0: taken. I guess this, this experience with junior nationals, no women's category, and then, you know, kind of putting your foot down and saying I want to do this. And then it coming out the next year isn't representative cross-country scheme being behind the times, but rather it was representative of our culture at the time in general, and more or less every other parallel sport or activity was just as behind the times?
1: Some were not behind the times like swimming, tennis, um, you know, equestrian, there there were sports for girls, um, but not so much like endurance sports like, like we like. And um, so, yeah, it, you're exactly right. It was just the era of Title IX hadn't come out yet. And um, yeah, it was just the beginning of all these yeah. possibilities for for young girls and women
0: so three years later when you were 16 years old you were named the first official us nordic ski team that's for men or for women right like the no men
1: men had a national team for quite a few years i'm not sure how long uh and i was not named to the very first team um i got named that next like at the end of a training camp we had in Winter Park, Colorado. Um, um, they named me also to that team. So I was a few months after the first team was named. Um, so I just yeah. want some
0: clarity. Were you the only were you the only woman named to the at that time?
1: No, no, no. So- there was there were like Barbara Bridge uh Trudy Owen who was no relation to me but we were great friends same name last name um there were like four or five uh Mary Pendleton okay uh, yeah there were there were quite a few
0: so the way I should have worded it if I had a better understanding when I tried to say it a couple minutes ago is in 1969 at just 16, 16 years old you were named to the first U.S. women's U.S. Nordic ski team exactly yep okay and then uh first off did that mean much to you I I guess being recognized as the national team like women having a national team what did that mean to you you were 16 so maybe you had a perspective then and a perspective now can you can you shed some light on that
1: it was awesome I I when I like I said it took a couple months for them to name me because I was so young and um and we hadn't had a lot of races to do the points and stuff. And so I wasn't named right away. It took a few months and it took that one training camp and, and, uh, I was so motivated to get on that team because, Hey, here was a team uh, for girls and I wasn't quite on it. And, um, and Al Merrill, um, was the program director then. And he really saw a lot of potential in me at that training camp in Winter Park. So at the end of that camp, I was named to that team and I got the uniform that, you know, the USA uniform. And it's like, whoa, yeah, no, it was awesome. I absolutely loved being named to that team. Just the recognition. Yeah, and and to know that I was good enough to do that. And I was on track because on track to do well because Above my bed at home, I had this like wish board, you know, like you hey you put pictures up there of all this stuff you want to see happen in your life, and in the very middle was Olympic team, and and uh, I knew, like I t- said, I knew from when I was really little that this was a mission for me, and and so I knew that getting on that U S ski team and and you know quickly accelerating was the way to do it. And so I, I totally totally loved, uh, loved being on that path of, of going there to the Olympics and, and getting international experience, yeah.
0: I wanna continue with your timeline, but first I wanna do a tangent because I had an experience, when I was, I think in fourth grade, I found a pin on the ground during recess. And I don't know where it came from, but the pin was the crest of the U.S. Olympic movement. And right. I was told that at the time, uh, it took me a long time asking tons of people, and I was told that only people who were in the Olympics on the U.S. team got that pin at the time. And uh, it kind of just impressed me. And I thought at some point around then, I want to do that. I really want to do that. And and so I, this is a very small sample size of two. <laughs> <laughs> I I thought at a very young age, that's something I really want to do is is make an Olympic team and participate, et cetera. And you did the same thing. How much do you think that created, you know, um, for sure, making an Olympic team has a lot to do with talent, but of course it's got a lot to do with determination, grit, preparation, you know, staying focused and working towards that goal. It's still, I mean, I know a lot of people when they were kids, they said, I want to make the Olympic team. And heck, they never came close. Of course, it's a hard thing to do. So it's a strange thing that we both had, in some ways, a similar experience there. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I totally and and I think some people are just really destined to do it. It does take a lot of work. Some people that are destined to it probably divert and don't do it. But but I just knew for me, I really wanted to, and and there was never a question. And I liked the work that went with it. I like training. I like the physical challenges. I I excel there and I need it in a way for my spirit to to feel alive and and so yeah
0: that everything you just said is me right there also
1: <laughs> I mean
0: the, the people talk about living the dream and they talk about the olympic dream well working your tail off trying to make the olympics is living the olympic dream it's it is and you said it makes you feel alive I did intervals today I'm 53 I did intervals today <laughs> <laughs> to me that is that makes me feel alive is when i'm out there and in, in uh high, you know oxygen debt and I'm, I'm working as hard as my body will let me work and it just makes me feel alive that's the i love being anaerobic it makes me feel alive as uncomfortable as it is i i know exactly what you're talking about
1: right right and it, it, it's really fun isn't it in that it's a lifelong thing i think that feeling of working your body and that kinesthetic awareness of your whole self uh, it doesn't come alive like that unless I'm outside doing something hard. Um, the closest I've come to it is in yoga and doing uh, long meditations uh, and working with my mind that way. But but still, you're not then working with your body and, and so much your breath. But uh, in yoga, I really love the breath work too.
0: Hmm. That's super. Let's get back to your timeline. Um, in 1970, you were on the first U.S. women's national team, and competed at the World Championships in Czechoslovakia. You were just 17 years old, and this would have been the first time you would have heard foreign languages, <coughs> seen street signs in an unreadable language, seen foreign money, and of course, flown in an international flight, I imagine. This alone, without the World Championships, must have been a memorable experience. What are your recollections?
1: Yeah. The non ski um,
0: part first, if you don't mind. Is it what? The non-ski part first, just the, the cultural shock of yeah. being in Czechoslovakia yeah. as a 17-year-old as a in 1970 and getting there. And do you, do you yeah. have any recollections about that?
1: Well, you know, like I grew up in that small town, Wenatchee. And so just even before I got on the airplane in Wenatchee to go there, it was like a huge deal for my town that that this young girl junior in high school is going to Czechoslovakia and <laughs> and so you know I had to give a lot of speeches I had to give a talk to my whole school in this and that in this assembly and so also I had to do a report on Czechoslovakia so um, I missed a lot of school when I was skiing and young and but I had to write a lot and and do a lot of studying about the countries I was going to so I I did study about Czechoslovakia a little bit. And in 1968, you know, the Soviets invaded to crush the Prague Spring because the the Czechoslovakians (coughs) people wanted freedom and and they were under the rule of the the Soviet Union. And so I knew about that in 68. And so we got over there. First, we went to Sweden and um, did a few races. It was just so great to be in a country where there was Nordic culture and, you know, see ski cross country equipment in ski stores and you can buy ski boots. I mean, my dad started his own little ski shop called Jack Shack and he would order stuff for us, ski boots and wax and skis from Norway. And it would take like six months to get it because they had to come on the boat. And I remember the first really good pair of skis I got. Um, oh, I was so excited. I waited so long. And the first night out was powder snow, and I broke them. Of course. And so. I, I just was, but anyway, so we get to Sweden and we're we're like, it was so exciting, so cool to be in a country with that huge Nordic culture. Everywhere you walked around, it was just like you could just see it and and I loved it. I just love Scandinavia, and, um, and I loved it that I didn't know the language, but I just dreamed they were all talking something about skiing, and they probably were, and so we went to Sweden for a while, skied. We actually got introduced uh, at a ski race, um, and the crown prince of Sweden gave us all this special Mora horse with a special insignia on it that I still have because we were the first American girls to come over in Nordic race there so it was a big deal to have American girls there and also for us it was a big deal and so exciting and you know to be a junior in high school getting to live the live what you're dreaming about and um yeah so I loved it so then we go to Czechoslovakia uh walking around Prague, beautiful city, but you could see the bullet holes in the the walls. Uh, it was heavy. It was it was hard to see that those people had gone through that, and um, it made me really proud to be an American and that we do have freedoms. I, I was just sort of it just took me emotionally to a place that was like. Way bigger, I think, ever than I would have had studying about it in a school book in Wenatchee, you know, when you go there. Yeah. So it was fun. It was really good.
0: So I want to I want to give an experience that I had and see if you can do the same thing with Czech Republic, with Czechoslovakia, see if this jogs something. So I went to World Biathlon Championships in 1993 in Bulgaria in Borovets, which is a mountain town up in the mountains. And if you asked me just tell me about Borovets, I would say like flashcards. I'd say like four things, squat toilets. So before the race, even you, you go to the squat toilet and there's, it's a minefield people missed all over the place and it's disgusting mess. And here you are, you know, with your ski boots on and getting ready for a world championship event and there's crap all over the place. It was just horrible. So that's one. Second one is the showers. My favorite showers I've ever had. I put a chair in the shower because it was like a room that was set in with a drain in it. And the shower came from straight above, like a waterfall. So I put a chair in it, a metal chair in the shower and just hung out in the shower and just sat in the chair for a while. It was awesome. Anyway, so that's number two. Another one would be, um, there was low snow. And so the, the Bulgarian army was shoveling. And they were making fires to stay warm. So the entire freaking course had fires and that means smoke from the fires on it, everywhere. So you felt like you were at campfire heaven with, with campfires and campers all over the place, but you're actually skiing through this course at world championships, but you smelled like a campfire. the only thing that was missing was the smell of s'mores or something, you know? So campfires, squat toilets and the awesome waterfall showers are an example of, of what I associate with bore vets. Bulgaria, yeah. can you do yeah. that with where you were in the Czech Republic, uh, Czech, Czechoslovakia? Well,
1: that's, that's kind of what I was trying to say a little bit too, is like, I was so taken by the things in our country that we just had that they didn't have. Like you went to the grocery store and there wasn't a lot of vegetables. There were some wrinkled up carrots and some potatoes and, and um, yeah, the, the place we stayed in Czechoslovakia, was like a barracks. It was just concrete buildings. And of course the men were separated from the women and um, it was just bare bones. It was like a, kind of like a prison which I think it might've been put into after <laughs> but it was cold, it was um, unfriendly um, but the people of Czech Republic were so great. Mm. They were really nice, really friendly, beautiful people. Um, and, and in Czechoslovakia, where we were, it was the Vysakhi Tatra Mountains and beautiful. It was cold, clear, beautiful, a lot of snow. Um, and the courses were well done. The skiing was good, uh, at least in my opinion, coming from what we had here in the States. It was awesome skiing. So. I want to ask
0: you about the skiing for sure, the ski races and your experience at the World Championships. But I have a question first. The team consisted of four athletes. That was Martha Rockwell, Trina Hosmer, Barbara Britch, and yourself, as well as US ski team coach Marty Hall. But there was one other person who traveled with you. Her name was Gloria Chadwick, and she was the team chaperone. We're talking about a senior world championships here, and you had a team chaperone named Gloria Chadwick. Times have changed, of course, but I am fascinated that a chaperone was needed. Can you please talk about what Gloria's role was?
1: (laughs) I'll tell you what I know. Um, I don't know that I'm privy to very much info on that, but Yeah. I mean, Trina was married and Martha was out of college and I was by, you know, three or four years, the youngest. So maybe it was for me. I I don't know. No one told me really, but, but where we stayed in Czechoslovakia did have separate accommodations for men and women. So as I remember it, Marty couldn't even come in our dorm and, um, so I think Gloria was there kind of maybe as a in between kind of person for all everything. and um, yeah, it did seem kind of strange to me too that that she would travel around with us as a chaperone. but you know, there was only Marty coaching us, and so there were a lot of details to take care of that if Marty would have had to do those, there would have been even less time for coaching and organizing and waxing and, and figuring this whole thing out which was new to all of us. So I think maybe she was a chaperone in name and also just maybe a team leader.
0: Okay, so, so what are the, some of the things that she did outside of kind of keeping you company and going back and forth between you all and Marty? I'm just curious.
1: Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that I ever cognated on that Mm -hmm. Um, I know, uh, you know, Gloria's not with us anymore, so, you know, she probably wouldn't care if I told this, but I know um, when we got in Europe, um, I was in the car, Martha and I were in the car with Marty, and Trina and Barbara were in the car with, with Gloria, and Marty drove so fast that he lost her, and I think I could be totally wrong, this is just my perception. Marty didn't want us to have a chaperone either. And um, he, you know, I don't know that he (laughs) was the easiest person for her to work with.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know what you're saying, obviously, (laughs) that's funny. Okay, well, so let's get to the skiing and the actual world championships. Uh, You're only 17 years old, you're competing in the senior world championships. You roomed with Martha, who was an experienced and tough competitor. What can you tell us about your experience at the World Championships in 1970 in Czechoslovakia? From from the skiing side of things.
1: From skiing, yeah. Well, I remember that the trails were really, really good. And, you know, Ian, this is 52 years ago. So... Yeah, it's a wa- it's a ways back there. And a lot has happened in skiing and a lot a lot of races and experiences. So I can only tell you ex- what I remember and it was I remember awesome trails, great powder snow, it was beautiful. Um, I, I don't remember that much about the races and how I felt or, or like the experience of the race. But I knew that's where I should be to be getting experience. And I felt so great that, that I was able to, at such a young age, see the best in the world. Mm. And I knew that, that I wanted to be that sometime if I could. And to get to see that view at a young age got me started on the right view of what I had to do. Um, of course we didn't understand doping that in the, then it was even legal. Um, and so, but when I look at pictures, even now, uh, of those women, man, you know, they were, they were seriously tough looking women and, uh, yeah. And so anyway, I remember that it was beautiful. It was exciting as heck. I felt totally over my head. I was just this junior in high school rookie going there with my eyes wide open going, okay, here we go. And I love it, but I don't know what I'm doing. And Marty was great with me. You know, Marty's always kind of been like a father figure and I think he sort of helped me stay focused on what was going on. So yeah, it was, it was great. And Martha, you know, was also a real mentor kind of, older sister, motherly type person to me. And I just really appreciated her steadiness and her, yeah, her taking me a bit under her wing because I always roomed with Martha. Mm. My whole time I skied and she was too, we were always roommates and yeah, I love Martha. So anyway, that's about all I can remember.
0: I think that most people or anyone that knows Martha feels the same way, I do. So let's jump to 1972. At just 19 years old, after qualifying at Olympic trials in Putney, Vermont, you were a member of the first women's Nordic Olympic ski team and competed in Sapporo, Japan. What can you tell us about being a member of the first women's Nordic Olympic ski team and also about your experience in Sapporo?
1: Right, I had just graduated from high school. Uh, I went... Back east, uh, uh, Marty Hall was the coach of the national team, and he really encouraged me to come to Hanover and train there. And I did it. I rode the train across the country, wow. uh, and um, I worked at the Hanover Inn as a maid. And I trained twice a day. The Dartmouth was still a men's school only men went there and Marty somehow fixed it up that I could go and do strength training and weights and stuff uh in the you know at Dartmouth and I would go in there and the Dartmouth football team would be in there and here's I would, I've always been really light boned really thin uh and um <laughs> <laughs> skinny little me in there lifting weights with the Dartmouth football team, and uh, being a maid. And and it was hard for me because I didn't know the trails. I didn't know anyone. Marty was around, but I was really out of my element going east. Uh, I'm a western girl. Um, I like vistas, you know, in the east, you know, you're always in the trees. It's really hard to get a view. And anyway, the climate, everything was so different. And it was super challenging for me to keep a really strong, good feeling about myself. Martha was around a little bit. I trained with her a little, but mostly I was on my own and we would have a few times the training camps, but, but I really had to be tough there. And um, it was hard. And you know, in those days, as you know, we didn't have Facebook, Instagram. We, we could call home on a party line and it cost a lot of money. So I was really cut off from my family and my friends in Wenatchee, but still it was good for me. And um and I I somehow did train hard enough and have the confidence and I made that team. And yeah I was I was young and and it was really fun because my my town was in Wenatchee was so behind me. They Raised money uh, for my parents to go to the Olympics after I qualified, and there was Alice in Owen Day, and, and a big parade, and all this stuff, and so I really felt the support of my f- friends and and my community at home, um, which helped. But you know, the I was, I, it was a very pioneering, I would say, for me, lonely time but also it's what I wanted to do. I knew it. And so yeah, persevered, made it and um, was on the way. And my big dream, you know, that I had over my bed there, make the Olympic team was like, that was so great. And I remember like going to where, you know, we got our uniforms and all these clothes and USA, this and that and red, white and blue. And it's like, Oh my gosh, this is so, so cool.
0: Did you get the uniform issue for the Olympic team in the United States or in Japan?
1: We got it in the U.S., yeah.
0: Oh. The reason I'm asking is when I was in the Olympics, we got it in France.
1: Oh,
0: yeah. So huh. different. Okay. Well, after that, um, you took a couple of years, a couple of years later, you took a couple of years to attend Alaska Methodist University. Studied there. Let me,
1: let me interrupt you just right there because I did ski two more years on the national team and I went to the next uh, the next um, world championships uh-huh. uh, in 74 in Falloon. And so I did have two more years of really intense international racing after 72.
0: Yeah. Have you got anything else to say about that? I, I knew about that and I have, I have actually all of your results from those events and everything but I wasn't sure uh, if anything was comment, comment worthy.
1: Oh, I don't know. Because one of the reasons I stopped after 74 was I wasn't improving internationally and, and it was really hard to spend all that time training and racing around and, and not be getting better internationally. As I look at it now, though, I was still a junior. Like now I would be racing, you know, U22s, U16s, like, but here I was racing, you know, senior level things, but really feeling like I wasn't improving. So that's when I quit and went to Alaska.
0: So then you came back to skiing. You competed in the Danon series, mostly in the East and in US nationals. And then the next year finally came the, the winter of 77, 78, where you competed internationally in Kirna, Falun. Sweden at the Swedish Ski Games. You competed in Oslo-Norway at the Holmenkollen Ski Festival and in Lahti-Finland at the World Championships as well as in the U.S. Nationals in Anchorage, Alaska. That winter you achieved four top 10 results in these international events and two wins and two seconds at U.S. Nationals. How important was this winter for you? It seems as though it laid a good foundation for your success the following two winners, which were extremely successful for you. I imagine the learning curve was steep and you progressed a lot, despite your already great results.
1: Well, uh, I'm, I'm amazed you know all those results. You you know more about it than I do, Ian, but, um, or you, you know, remember more. Um, yeah, you know, when I went to Alaska and went to college there, I never quit training. Mm-hmm. I thought I was retired from international racing but my lifestyle and just me was that person who loved training, loved being tough. Um, so I kept going with that part of me as I also explored this side of me that I hadn't really had even in high school cause I was gone so much from studying, but um, or from school, you know, so I thought, oh great. To be able to combine studies with skiing, it, you know, but I ne- I was still really really focused um, on skiing. And
0: I noticed those two years you did compete in U.S. Nationals as well. Um, yeah, had your usual results, but um, but I I if you have anything else to say on that, that's great. But we have a lot to talk about.
1: Okay, um, okay.
0: Did, my question was regarding the. The 79, I'm sorry, the 78.
1: 77,
0: 78 winner where you competed in all those different places that I mentioned. How, was that, that was the first year since college that you kind of went for it and you competed all over the place and that you were successful that winter. You had a great year for sure. But the two winners afterwards were unique, uniquely successful. And I'm curious your thoughts of kind of putting yourself through the meat grinder that year. How, 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 if that helped you a foundation for success with two years afterwards
1: it sure did and you know one thing that made me decide to come back and give it a really solid try was bill Koch's uh success you know in 76 and um and i thought you know i know a lot about this i really really like this and so when i went that year you're talking about it was kind of like a test like like am i good enough to do this and do I know enough? And it's like, yeah, I proved to myself that with more, you know, really focused attention to it, um, I I had some possibilities. And so that year was really, really fun, but also it was like a test for me. Like, do you like it? Is it what you want to get back into?
0: Super. Well, let's talk about, um your two, let's say, glory years, if you will, (laughs) from my perspective. Um, The winter is 78, 79. In December of 1978, you competed in what was then billed as, by the Fists, as the first Women's World Cup races. So just for clarity, the Fists were the ones that designated these races as the first Women's World Cup races. They were held in Telemark, Wisconsin. At that same event, at the same time, the men also had World Cup races. So it was a men's and women's World Cup event held in Telemark, Wisconsin in December of 1978. You ended up winning both the five and the 10K events, becoming the winner of the first women's Nordic Ski World Cup according to the FIS at the time. In the 5K, the six competitors behind you were from Sweden, Norway, Canada, Norway, Canada, and Sweden the famous and very successful Barrett, and I guess her name is Cavelo, but later she got married and she became Barrett only. Obviously she became very famous under that name. She was third in that race in the, in the 5K. And the 10K, it was similar with a train of foreign skiers behind you. Second place being taken by Sweden's Marie Johansson who took second in both events. First, I wanna say huge congratulations. What are your recollections from this historic weekend?
1: Yeah. Well, there's a lot of different feelings and emotions and thoughts and experiences from that weekend. When it when it when I went through it and, and it was actually happening, you know, I knew I was good enough to win it. Um, I I had skied long enough and, and raced in enough races internationally and to know what kind of shape I was in physically, mentally, spiritually, like, and I knew I was strong and I knew I could win it. And, um, so the, you know, training for that, we were there for a while. The skiing was awesome. It was fast. I love those trails there. Uh, and, and so I was so psyched. And then The day of the World Cup, it was snowing so hard. And it was a soft track. And it was like not the kind of skiing that I had been imagining. It was super slow. um, And it took us 18 minutes to ski that. And we, you know, it was just like the days before had been, you know, way faster. So it was a little bit scary in a way because i didn't know what my scheme would be like in that conditions i was a f- i like fast tracks uh, and and so this was going to be more like a slog and um so i didn't know but i knew my sh- i was in good shape i was ready and so i just went for it and i got a couple splits out there you know that i was leading and it's like okay here we go and And, uh, it was, it was just, it kind of seemed like it was, it was the right thing because like I said before, I knew I was ready. I knew physically, mentally, every way I could do this. I just had to go out there, go through the process and it would come out that way. Um, sometimes having the courage to actually go through the process, you kind of have to, you know, swallow and go for it. And, um, yeah. So I remember it as being, especially that, that World Cup day, slow skiing. And I don't know that that's hard. I, it's not that fun to to ski on soft tracks and try and go fast and like be, be really finesseful about how, how to go fast. Because if you put a lot of power into it, you're just going to punch out the bottom of the trail, you're not going to go forward very fast. So you had to be really, you know, finesseful about how, how to, get the speed and um but it was fun it was really great and then you know getting those splits halfway through like yeah you're leading it's like okay I'm doing it right here yeah
0: I talked with Marty Hall a couple months ago after I did the interview with Bill Koch and he mentioned this very day to me and he said uh, it was news to him that it wasn't a world cup because you know later on it was the world cup started in 81-82 he made the point that when you all were there, the fists were calling it the World Cup. It said World Cup on the literature and the certificates, etc. And, and as far as you were all concerned, it was a World Cup event. That's how it was being built. So he was kind of surprised, as, as many of us were, to hear later that the World Cup started in 81-82. Okay. Do course you want
1: to see this? So, this? Can you, tell, can you see that, Ian?
0: Yeah, I can see it just great. Tell us what it is. I can read it. This
1: is the medal that I got for that World Cup. Uh, it might be backwards in your view. Nope, I'm perfect. not sure. It's perfect. And, uh, you know, I made it into a belt buckle <laughs> uh, for my dad because after a while, you know, I was getting all the feedback that, hey, that wasn't really a World Cup, that da 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 you know. And, and so I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to give that to my dad, and he and so one Christmas I made it into this belt buckle and gave it to my dad.
0: <laughs> Can you show it to us again, just the same way you did before, because it was very easy to read. Um, you're you're in the corner. Put it right in front of the camera, please. Yeah, uh, and a little bit farther away. Okay, and a little higher. Okay, stop. So it says, first FIS Cross Country Ski World Cup Race." And then it's got the date and says telemark USA, December, 2021, 1978. And then there's a picture of what looks to me like a bunny rabbit on skis with something in his hands. Any idea what the significance of that is?
1: (laughs) Yes, I do. That is the oldest depiction of a petroglyph in a cave. I think it's in Norway of a skiing thing. Cool. And so, and so. It's the oldest skiing depiction that we have of of something on skis. I I have no idea why it's a rabbit, but um, that's what that is, is a petroglyph, an image of a petroglyph with, on skis. And so that's why, you know, first World Cup, first ski, petroglyph.
0: (laughs) You have a picture in the background. It's a a, a pretty well-known, at least to me, picture. It's a picture of you skiing, and I I'm not sure, but I believe it's from that race. Is that it? It is.
1: Yeah. Yes, it is. It's that it's a, one it, right it, there.
0: Yeah. Pretty cool to have that memento uh, in your house.
1: It says on the on the race bib for you know World Cup, da da da. And I put that picture there. It's usually I don't keep it out, but I thought you know that's kind of fun to have in this this interview.
0: Of course it is. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for doing that. Okay, so here's a little bit of perspective I want to shed on this day um, and on the, on the on the season, the 78-79 uh, the, um, season that we're talking about. Before the 81-82 season started, the FIS announced that they would be formally starting the World Cup Series for the first time for both men and women, which was odd because they already had many, many, many World Cup races that they – had recognized as world cup. So, but, so that was a little odd that winter Barrett only the same woman who was third in the race we're just talking about won the overall world cup. And that same year, she won three golds and a silver at the world championships. My point is that in spite of the world cup series, quote unquote, officially starting in the 81, 82 winter, clearly the events that were held beforehand, which the fists referred to as world cups were actually world cups. I see it the same as with the men where the field was full of ski racing legends before 1982. Skiers such as uh Bro and Mikkel and uh Johan Bela and Um Maria De Zolt, um Savilov, Simitov, um Ericsson, the other Ericsson from Sweden, um, uh, Johan Mieto, Hari kervasnimi those are all well-known, you know, household skiing legend names. They all competed in the World Cups before 81-82. It's the same as that. You've got the three golds in the Silver World Championship winner in 1981-82 winner who was third in this race and a better race that we're talking about. So um, I think it's a strange thing for Fisto to have said, okay, starting now, this is the, the first Women's World Cup, and then a couple of years, three years later to say, okay, starting now. Actually, that's a weird thing to have have been done. Um, Clearly, they were World Cup events on the men's before 81-82. And clearly, the World Cup events were also held for women starting at this event that you won. So congratulations.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Ian. Um,
0: So let's get back to the winner of 78-79. After the World Cup events that you won in Telemark, Wisconsin, You went on to compete in World Cup events in West Germany, East Germany, Switzerland, Lake Placid, New York, Sweden, and Czechoslovakia, where you had the world championships in 1970. You had three top 10 finishes in addition to winning both U.S. national championship titles. Uh, Impressively, you, you ended the winter seventh in the overall World Cup. Those three top 10 finishes, I believe, were in addition to the two victories. Um, do you have any experiences? So you ended that winter, seventh. I want to emphasize that in the overall World Cup. Do you have any experiences that you would like to share from that winter, 78,
1: 79? Yeah, that 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 was when I it all came together. And it's such a cool feeling when you're, you've trained that many years, you know, it's, what can you say? It's just like everything that you hoped you would feel like, and, and that that would happen, happened. I, I don't know. It was just like, and everything on the U.S. ski team was so clicking, like the coaching was good. Our skis were good. Um, We were, as a team and as a program, it was really working. And so I could take advantage of that in a way where where I didn't have to struggle in any way. Everything helped me um, reach those goals and, and reach those results. Um, I remember, though, like the last race in Czechoslovakia, I was the only one that went uh, from the us because i had to get a certain place uh in order to stay in the top 10 in the world cup i had to i can't remember the numbers of all these things but i had to have a certain result and it was a 10k i think it was a 20k maybe or a 10 i don't know you might have that but i do uh it was either a 10 or a 20 and and it, it, was, was, a, it was a 20k and a five yeah. k. yeah and it was it was in the spring. It was after homicoling. It was wet snow, dirty, wet snow, super slow, and uh, 20Ks. And I'm a fast skier. I, I like 5Ks. In those days, 20s were long for women. And and I, I like going fast. And, and um, so 20K was hard for me. It was slow snow. I was so tired. It was the end of the season. And I was the only American there. Um, And, you know, I just had to do it. And so I did. And um, I ended up, like it says, you know, I placed seventh overall. But I remember, like, I went to the airport to come home. There was this little ramp. I had to push my ski bag and my (laughs) luggage up. And I couldn't do it. And the darn thing was coming back down on me. And I was so tired. So this guy helped me push it up. But, but, um. I remember, you know, again, in Czechoslovakia, feeling so grateful that I was an American and I could go home and our grocery stores would have food in them. And and in Czechoslovakia, there was good beer and there was what we called mystery meat, which is like hot dogs and very little else. And um, so... I I remember just knowing I was going home soon after this uh, but also knowing how I just maxed myself out that season and what I didn't know you know there were five Russians ahead of me and one Norwegian and in the World Cup standings and we didn't know about doping and and I don't think it was even illegal then. And and I, when I look at five Russians were ahead of us, with me and then one Norwegian, I mean, I feel good about it, really. I feel good that that I could do that and that an American woman persevered, had the, the <laughs> fortitude and the support, a Nordic culture that could support that. So it, it, it's been a really fun, Successful thing to have done, but I don't think the American culture at home knew about it. They, I don't think people really have realized until pretty recently what happened then. And uh, it's taken a while for that to catch up and actually be a something. Um, but yeah, it, it was awesome. And I, and I really know, I knew because I know my body, I know myself. Um, that I was at that level of skiing and, and, and uh, I, that's what made me the happiest that I could actually be at that level of skiing. Um, Cause it feels so cool. It feels so great to uh, be that, that in shape and that strong and that kinesthetically aware that you can actually ski that way. Uh, so it was, it was great. It was fun. It was what I wanted to do at that time in my life. And I did it.
0: Let me shed some light on a couple of things that you addressed. First, you're placing. If you're curious, because you mentioned you were better at the shorter events, you were in the 20k. You finished eighth, and in the 5k, you finished 12. <laughs> um, but I it, bet you,
1: I bet you, the 20k was the World Cup points.
0: I think they both were. Oh. Um, but anyway, the in the five Russian women that are ahead of you. Again, we're talking about pre World Cup officially quote-unquote first thing I want to say is you said you needed to stay in the top 10 why did you need to stay in the top 10 because even then my understanding was there was a red group right and the red group means you get funding from the fist to travel to events you get out of the red group the funding's gone and next thing you know you're working as a maid in uh, in the hotel <laughs> Hanover you know um Hanover Inn so um despite there not being a quote-unquote World Cup, there was a red group with funding from the FIS so you could get to all the World Cup events. So it's ridiculous to say there wasn't a World Cup. Uh, the other thing is, um, you mentioned doping and the Russian women. Well, two of the most famous cross-country ski names ever in women's cross-country ski racing, um, just behind Mark Bergen and Wins, are Kulakova and Smetanina. Yeah. Those are two of the five women that were in front of you. So we're not we're talking about legends of the sport, okay, horribly doped and uh, tainted. But regardless, in terms of wins and their legacy, um, we're talking about some of the greatest, fastest skiers ever who are just in front of you. Um, so seventh overall in the overall World Cup, that is a remarkable ex- uh, achievement, especially considering these five dope-to-the-gills Russian women that were in front of you, plus a, a top Norwegian.
1: You know, one of my favorite memories, Ian, is about that when, because Galina Kulikova, the top Russian was so dominantly my hero. She just was winning all the time. And I remember we were in East Germany at some races and I started the relay and she also started the relay. And uh, I'm skiing along and, uh, you know, I started kind of in the middle of the pack and I kept passing people and uh, pretty soon, I'm behind Galena Kulakova and I'm skiing along up this kind of gradual uphill. And I'm thinking, you know, I can go faster than this. And I'm thinking, yeah, but this is Galina Kulakova. She probably knows what she's doing. You better not like blow up and just stay behind her for a while. So I'm skiing along behind her, and we get to the top of the hill, and I'm like, no, I can go faster. So I track her and I pass her, and then there's this downhill, and I'm just like, come into the stadium first. Uh, for the American women and it's kind of funny because um, Leslie Bancroft was going out second and she was like in this panic and the coaches told me that they had to kind of almost pick her up and put her in the tag zone because she was just like ah! and so uh, I remember passing Galena Kulikova and going should I be doing this like is this real like whoa you know and and so I remember that really really well that I was skiing at that level and um, yeah I could I could ski with those good Russians I'm not sure like when they're doped but but uh that I don't know how they did it I don't know what they did I don't know how often they were like jazzed up I don't know anything about it but but on some days I could ski with them
0: sure Leslie was a tenacious competitor, um, but even the most tenacious and courageous competitor when you're put in a situation where for the first time, you're leading a World Cup, really you're getting a tag. That is extremely intimidating. So let's talk about um, the next winter. You also had a very successful 1979-1980 winter. You won two more international events in Telemark, Wisconsin and also in Ramso, Austria as well as you won both US national championship titles. Despite competing in the Olympics in Lake Placid, probably the highlight from that winter was your second place finish in the Holmenkollen Ski Festival 10k race in Oslo, Norway. What can you tell us about this amazing day?
1: Well, I can tell you that the 10k was a couple days after the five. And in the 5k, I was leading that race and a, you know, how there's thousands of people and the army is out there helping. And one of the army guys stepped out in front of me and I crashed into him and I wasn't leading anymore. I ended up seventh in the five. So going into the 10, okay. I knew I could do it. If nobody got in my way and everything worked and um so it didn't really surprise me that i got second i wish i would have won uh I, I don't know i don't i haven't looked at results really but i don't know how close i was to winning that but it was awesome because i'd been going to home and in quite a few years you know before when i was younger and it's such a festival and so nordic and um but I have to tell you, you know, we went over to, to the home and after the Olympics in Lake Placid. And before those Olympics, we had these, the North American Championships, you know, so Canadians, Americans were there and they were at Mount St. Anne. And it was the tryouts for the Olympic team, part of the team. I'd already made the team the year before, so it wasn't really tryouts for me, but it was definitely, you know, races getting ready for the Olympics. And, um, I, I was skiing so great. I felt so awesome. And, uh, right after that, I got a cold and colds for me go right in my lungs. And, um, it was Olympics and I had a really bad chest cold. So I ended up, I think, I don't even know. I, I felt like an old lady out there. And, uh, I think my best was 23rd or something. I was hoping for like Top 10s, top fives, you know, I was dreaming and um, I got sick. So, so when I went back to Europe, I was over that cold. I got second and like I finished up good, but it was, it was so harsh because everybody's all about the Olympics. And so was I. And um, so it it was, it was great to get second in homocomb, but it was also like, dang, wish I could have got second last week. (laughs)
0: So you retired from ski racing after the 1980-81 winter, after winning two more US national championships in Lake Placid. It's important to keep in mind <clears throat> that it's, there were only two or three national championships events each year, traditionally. Starting when you were physically mature, post-college, you raced in 10, at least as far as I know, 10 US national championship events, and you won eight, which is a remarkable return. You were at the top of your game when you retired, won both national championships that year, and I guess you were 28 years old when you retired. What was your motivation in ending your active ski racing career at that time?
1: Well, I had I went back over to Europe, and I wasn't planning necessarily to be finished. Uh, and I, you know, I, but the whole ski team had changed, um, all the coaches. Uh, the whole program after 80, um, switched, you know, John Bauer, wasn't the program director, Rob wasn't coaching. And so, but you know, I kept at it some, and, um, like always, I like to train. I like to feel fit and strong. And, um, so that part was easy and fun. But when I got back to Europe, we were in Rydenwinkel and, um, we didn't get the wax it took me forever to get over there i was so jet-lagged it was it was just so hard again and and i just knew you know everything has to be clicking everything if you're going to be at the top and and you can't have 10-hour layovers get into europe you can't miss the wax you can't have these things that like don't work and I'm getting sort of teary-eyed about it because I did know I'm twenty eight. I'm at the peak of what my abilities, you know. And uh, but I knew it wasn't gonna happen. And uh, you know, it was like sweet and sour because uh, the sweet was I got to go home uh, and and start a life, which had been put on hold a long time. So that was the sweet part, but the but the downside was, hey, I just had gotten there. I was just even, and I had proved it, and I knew it physically, mentally. I knew this sport. I knew what was going on, and uh, it wasn't going to happen. And so that part was hard, but it was time for me to move on. And and you know, in that day, and it's funny, but 28 was old. It's like, oh, you're old. You're 28. Okay, well. And um, now we know, you know, that women just reached their physical maturity around 28. And so it's the time that you can take advantage of all that, all the training and all, all the maturity. But at, in those days, you know, 28 was an old lady and you better go, you know, get in the rocking chair. And um, and so I left and, and also I was very kind of discouraged because I would watch the effects of doping we didn't really understand what was going on but I couldn't compete the way I wanted to at big big events and looking back on it I know it was doping but at that time we didn't know about it and um, I remember riding on the bus back to the to the airport and I was good friends with the Finnish coach and we sat together on the bus and he, he said, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing you out there and I said, you know what? I'm done. And he goes, no, 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 no. I said, yep, yep, yep. Because I said, you know, I just don't know how to compete at these, the biggest events. Like, and I think that coach knew they, he knew even those fins. And, and I mean, I can't prove it or anything, but he knew about the doping and he knew that we weren't and that we were, in there and he was really trying to encourage me to keep going but you know ian i am glad i didn't because it was so confusing and and really not validating to have to compete that way Hmm. so i was glad to move on in my life and i had two kids and you know it was all good
0: absolutely let me um I, after you retired, you coached, but I, I want to talk about, um, you were married to Rob Kiesel and had two children with him. Rob's a, a legend. Everyone kind of reveres Rob as well. He coached the U S Nordic ski team for years. He was the head coach as well for a while. He worked for Swix for 28 years and was known as an innovator. He also founded the Nordic program in the sun Valley area for any who knew him. He was an inspirational figure, despite his great humility and desire to stay out of the limelight. Can you please reflect on Rob who passed away in
1: 2011? Yeah, we miss Rob a lot. He's, you know, the dad of my kids and and uh, just a really special, unique, um, like, like you said, innovator. And he, he was a mountain guy. He loved mountain culture. He was a really good climber. He was He had the first winter ascent on El Capitan. Um, He loved rock climbing, uh, loved all kinds of skiing. Uh, I wouldn't say he was the best at Nordic of all his kinds of skiing. He loved backcountry. He was so amazing in making skis fast and known that way in every different kind of skiing. waxed and worked on skis for people who who set the speed skiing records they revere him there's articles written people send me articles about rob's ski prep for different competitions um, he was magic with skis and one of the reasons my two kids you know they each wanted junior nationals and um they had very fast skis um, <laughs> Uh, and he always would work on them and get those skis fast. And I always had good skis racing. So, you know, one story about Rob, when he was young, he was so interested in all this stuff that he put two different kinds of wax. He was just a young boy in the track to test it. And he just tested the wax and he had to go down the trail and see which wax was faster. And, and he was always this innovative. And what I would say about Rob is he loved his work. He loved working with the ski industry, trying to be innovative and bring it to the whole world. He was the product manager for the Pacific Rim, Korea, Japan, all that area. So he was traveled a lot. the pacific rim countries but he worked for a norwegian company so he was gone a lot and he traveled a lot and that's very hard on your health Mm -hmm. and uh i always saw that in rob like oh all these long long flights and and everything it's like oh take care of yourself but you know Rob and I had a lot have and had a lot of respect for each other and I learned so much from Rob about excellence about humility and um, yeah Rob's just an amazing guy that we all just love and miss but yeah yeah really great guy
0: thank you I also know that he had a whole lot to do with the US ski team success Uh, there are many races where the US ski team had the fastest skis in the race despite one thinking that all of the knowledge and know-how comes from European countries, being a European sport. Um, he had a great deal to do with the, European, the American team having the best skis in many events. So hats off to Rob, I just wanted to give him, take the opportunity to give him a little tribute and then we can go back to um, Allison Owen Bradley's story. <laughs> so you coached in Sun Valley, Idaho for 10 years with the Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation. Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation head coach Rick Kapala said the following about you. Quote, I was well aware of Allison's success as a leader of our women's team, but I did not entirely understand that the many qualities that she possessed as a ski racer would also transfer to her ski coaching. Allison possesses a unique intellect and drive. Obviously, she was an elite international competitor, but what I came to appreciate in Allison was her ability to think very deeply about how to apply sport knowledge to coax the best out of every skier on our team. Prior to her involvement with the Sun Valley team, our program was good, but we often fell short of reaching our potential. Upon Allison's arrival, our skiers almost immediately started winning U.S. Junior National Championships. In Allison's time with us, she directly coached six U.S. Junior National Champions, and world and junior team members. And moreover, she helped build our team into the program we are today," end quote. He went on to say that today, he still utilizes information and coaching concepts that he learned firsthand from you. Can you please tell us about your experience coaching at the Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation?
1: Well, I hadn't heard that from Rick, and that's very nice. Thank you, Rick. I don't know if that's all true, but it's nice to think it might be, um, you know, I don't feel like I was as, as successful as a coach, as I was an athlete. Uh, when it's me working with me, it's easier to get the results than me trying to transfer me into helping someone else. So, coaching is a difficult I think endeavor for a racer um, a lot of people have told me it's it's very hard to go from racing to coaching and I agree um, I think for me coaching juniors was hard because uh, <laughs> they didn't necessarily have the same level <clears throat> of ambition mm-hmm. that I wish they would have had, (laughs) um, but, but I having two children too helped me mitigate a bit of my, um, harshness about it. And, um, so, so I liked coaching because I, I like to dig a little deeper than most people that I know. Um, and that's what I did there. Uh, I, I was a good technical coach because I'm. I was a good classic skier, so I could coach that. And when I coached there most of the years, it was just classic skiing, and I know classic skiing. I know fast classic skiing. It's changed now because of all the double pulling, but but I know what makes fast skiing, and it was really fun to try and show that to the to the kids. But um. But what I what I think. I treasured with the coaching was helping, trying to help the kids see that what they were learning there could be applied to anything they're doing. And that skiing was their learning playground of life. And, and that it was just a place that it wasn't serious. You didn't, you weren't going to live or die over how you did in a ski race. You might think you were going to, but it was just a ski race, but it was a place that you could test out, are things working for you? Is your thinking of how th- to do things working? And, and the results, it was obvious. So skiing is a playground. And, and so um, that's how I worked with coaching was, how's it working for you? Is how you're thinking working? Is, your, is how your training working? And if it wasn't, hey, let's change something. And I really, really like working with the mental, how to address competition and training mentally. Uh, there's a lot of uh, people that address it physically, and that's awesome because it's very big part of it. But I, I think more can be done in the area of how are you training your mind? How are you training your thinking and your spirit and your soul while you're out there. Because if you're just training your body and your mind and your spirit aren't getting trained, and I think consciously training, just like we physically consciously train, we're missing a huge part of what's the benefits later on for these kids. And I think that you do learn a lot training that hard and that for that seriously but a lot of times it's not even conscious what you're learning and I think I think there's some really good things to come out of being more conscious of what we're learning as Nordic skiers and being able to put that into other areas of our life especially for kids that don't go on and you know, go to college, go on and be a ski team member. So that's, I liked coaching, but I don't really feel like I was as good as Rick said I was.
0: <laughs> I bet you guys made a great team.
1: Well, you know, it was, it was Rick, Capola, Muffy Ritz and myself. Yeah. And, and we knew that we were all very different people and we supported that difference in each other. And, and we let each other be who we were and take those different roles. And, and you know, Rick, Rick is so fun. Everybody wants to be around Rick. He's very, he's very great. And, and I'm not really, I'm, I'm way more deep. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, kids don't wanna just flock to me to have fun they might want to talk to me to be better or if they're you know anyway and then you know muffy she's like having dressing up wearing costumes you know she's just a ball of fun and so the three of us together really covered a lot of bases and i thought we were awesome team and and rick was awesome for me to work with because he let me be me and my my main coaching focuses were technique and the mental aspects of training and racing, and those are my things. And and so he let me really run with those. And and uh, I liked working one on one with kids a lot. Groups were harder for me. Cool. Yeah. Um,
0: after you finished coaching with Sun Valley Education Foundation. And after seeing, seeing little support for post-collegiate skiers to develop, you also formed and coached the WIND team, which stands for Women in Nordic Development. I remember this because I sponsored the team. <laughs> <laughs> yep. um, the headliners in the team are Laura Wilson and Jen Douglas, both of which were very successfully uh, successful nationally and also competed internationally with the United States. So that was a really successful thing you did. And it filled a niche at the time, because there really wasn't any opportunity for post-collegiate development. So that was great. Um, We have established that you are a great coach, despite your discomfort with that label. (laughs) I'd like to get some opinions from you, please. So from more or less from here on out, I'm going to be firing questions at you. And I'm hoping that people have stayed with us for this long time. This is the carrot at the end of the reward at the end of the of the deal here, there's going to be a lot to be learned here, and I'm excited to hear the answers myself. Um, so, first off, what advice would you give to a 16-year-old aspiring junior racer? What priorities would you recommend emphasizing?
1: Well, when you ask me that question, I, I uh, think about our. Uh, you know, okay. So, do I have like one session with this athlete? And, um, or, or do I have them for the whole season? And it really, it's the same, it's kind of the same answer, but carried through the season, it would be more effective, but it would be that, um, they work on their whole self while they're skiing and that, um, yeah, they bring their physical self there. But how are they bringing their attitude and their mind? Where are they uh, when they're going into these workouts? Are because if you aren't congruent with your whole self, and you're just there—say you're just there going through the, the you know the workout—but uh, your mind is over here on what you're going to have for dinner, or or. What's your boyfriend's thinking or, or, you know, their fight that you had with your parents, whatever it is, if you're not congruent with your mind and your body, you're, you're just kind of going through the motions. So working with young skiers, it's so important. I think to start training all of it. Yeah. They go out and they ski a lot and they go to these workouts and they kind of put in their time, but if they want to really be effective, be conscious. Where, What are you feeling? Can Is that working for you? Um, is it a positive learning mind uh, for what you're trying to do? When I was coaching for SVSEF, uh, Rick uh, paid for a trip for me to go to Finland. And I worked with Yuri Hannon, uh, he's a Russian, and I learned this thing called individual zones of optimal functioning. And with that, uh, you can do these assessments and everything and figure out your mental emotional state that's the most effective for you. And I think it's a little bit different for a race or for a training workout, or if you're working on technique, but figure out where are you the most effective mentally and emotionally to, to master the task that you're gonna do? So if it's technique say, and, and you're gonna go into a technique session, <clears throat> what's your optimal zone of functioning to learn technique? You should know that and you should be in that zone of, of emotion and, and thinking so that you get the most out of that technique session. Some people are very coachable. What does that take? It takes an open mind. It takes confidence that you can do this new thing. It takes patience because your body isn't used to it. So I would say coaching juniors to start working on the whole person and the attitude and the, how they bring themselves to what, the task that they're doing. And coaching that is what I like to do because a lot of times we don't coach that. We just send them out there. They're supposed to figure it out themselves. Uh, If they're good at it, that's great. But what if they aren't good at it? It's just like, what if a skier isn't strong? Hey, they can go lift weights, they can get stronger. You can also get stronger at being successful at learning And, and, you know, when I watch like Keegan Randall's interview that you did with her, which was so excellent, you can see how much she learned how to be successful with her attitudes and her, how she brings herself to her tasks. And, and so coaching these young skiers, that's what I would work on, um, as an emphasis is, is how are you feeling? Is that effective? How could it be more effective? How can you change that if it isn't effective? How to work on those kind of things is um, how I like to coach because there's a lot of technically good coaches and we need those. But my forte, I think, because is, is the other part because that was so important to me, how my spirit felt when I went to a race. Because if I didn't have a strong spirit, I didn't have a lot of energy and you need a lot of energy. So that's one of the points I would make. And the other thing I like to coach was that the bottom line of this sport is to go fast. And so always, always, no matter the workout, maybe not strength works out so much like in the gym and stuff, but always on skis, be feeling for speed speed is what we're after here we're not after working hard it does take working hard it does take power it does take every ounce of your energy but if you don't understand what makes your ski fast and does you don't understand like how to go fast it doesn't matter how strong you are it doesn't matter you know like sometimes these juniors would get so discouraged like They would say, I went so deep in the pain cave. Nobody could go deeper. I can never go deeper. How can I get better? And it's like, because you need to learn speed. And then you put the power to it. Because if you put the power to something that you don't know how to create speed, you're just working hard out there. If you want to just work hard, go chop wood. You want to go fast, figure out how to go fast on your skis. And where does that speed come from? How do you stand on that ski and make it fast? Like, I'll tell you one story. Like when I was coaching in Sun Valley, we would do these speed traps a lot. And, and uh, we'd have this nice kind of steep downhill that had a good run out. And we had a trap, speed trap in it. And then we had the long run out. So we were testing two ways. And, and uh, I, would, I would get in a talk and take go down there. And I'd win both things i'd go the fastest and i'd have the biggest run out and the kids were like and i said okay so let's trade skis i'd get on their skis i'd still have the fastest time check and i'd go the furthest on their skis and i'm saying and i say to them you've got to learn how to ride a ski you've got to learn what makes speed in that ski even if it's slowing down you're trying to carry the speed so that's one of the emphases that I think we can do better in our country. That this sport, you do have to put every ounce of energy you have into it energetically and, and you know, strength and stuff. But the bottom line, that isn't the bottom line. The bottom line is how, how do you learn to go fast? And, and then you put the pedal down. So I, I like teaching about speed. And even in a long, slow distance workout, no, you're thinking about speed. And you're skiing behind people. How do you make easy speed? What makes speed in your ski? And you can really feel it when you're going slow. It's, it's harder to feel when you're going fast because you've got the power behind it too. And that's confusing because you don't know if it's the power doing it or the way you're standing on your ski and, and the way you're moving your ski forward and the timing of moving that forward Um, And where you put the energy and where do you put the power to make it fast so it's all about finding what makes a fast ski. So that's what I would tell them.
0: (laughs) My next question would be considering ski technique and either classic or skate what general recommendations do you have to offer. To me what you just said was a very important technique tip or observation. We, you and I talked a few days ago, more or less in preparation for this, but just kind of just talking because it was fun to talk with you. And I've also seen in the past that you've made comments regarding speed versus finesse, quickness, um, perhaps alluding to the pitfall of de- depending too much on power versus the overall picture of quickness and finesse. And as I mentioned at intervals this morning, I do intervals now and then, and I found I, I was playing around with it. And um, when I was in a V2 section, for example, on a climb, and I was starting to run out of juice, you know, run out of power, et cetera, I found I put a little bit of bounce in it. So using my body weight a little bit more, going up and down, I would go faster with less effort. For, that's an example of how your, your tips inspired me to ski a little bit better. And to think more about instead of just power being a guy and being you know wanting to be strong, thinking more about the big picture of moving faster, using quick finesse movements and so on. And so that's an example of how it helped me. Just as one you know the only person that's heard those words from you recently. So would you want to elaborate on that? On on not just going fast but also the the quickness and the finesse versus power. How you can how. Uh, depending on power can be a pitfall and how the solution could be to maybe put a little more emphasis on quickness and finesse.
1: That's fun, Ian. And and, and to me, just me, it made skiing fun, not just a lot of work. I like the work. I really like the work of it, but, but um, skiing is, can be so fun and, and feeling that speed. And so one example of, of a workout that, um, I had the kids do in Sun Valley that I thought could teach this, uh, in a, in a way, I mean, I, like I said, I think you should do it all the time. Even, even long, long slow distance workouts, you gotta be thinking about speed. Um, but so, so <clears throat> on an interval day, I would say, okay, do this interval. It's like a one K maybe, and uh, varied terrain. It wasn't super hard so do an interval. Don't, don't max out on it. Don't, you know, die. Cause you're going to be doing some more. So, so just do a really good solid interval. Uh, and, and they had their heart rate monitor on. And so we timed it and they did, they, they saw their heart rate. So we recorded that. And I said, okay, now next interval, you got to do it with a lower heart rate, but faster. And you got to figure out how to do that. And you got to feel it and, and what makes you go faster, but easier. So, you know, they had to go out there and really feel for the speed, but keep the energy level of it down a little bit so that, uh, their heart rate stayed down. And so they do that interval and I'd say, okay, doing it again, go faster, but keep, get your heart rate even lower, relax more um, work on speed, carry speed. Like this is this, this sport is to see who's the fastest. It's not to see who's working the hardest. Um, that will come later. That will be added. But if you add that working hard before, you know, how to, where to put that hardness, uh, you're just working hard. And, um, so anyway, we would do four or five intervals and, um, the goal was, to uh, be faster with a lower heart rate by the end. Oh, and okay. it was really interesting, they could do it. And uh, especially after a while in the season, but that's one example of finesse versus power versus learning about speed on skis. And um, and yeah, we worked a lot on speed on the downhills, like especially on, you know, over distance days, if it's a gradual downhill, it doesn't mean you go slow. Right. It means you keep your heart rate low.
0: And especially the technical downhills one thing i like to do if you have the terrain is to do a chinese downhill as it's called yeah on the, on the technical downhills. when you're, you're in a group anyway you're skiing together race the downhill and then go back to plodding along again and and you get really good at downhills I had, a, I had a comment on what you said earlier about skiing more efficiently what i try to capture and i've been i've been trying to do this for decades now if you're skiing in a, in a pack and you're, let's say second or third or fourth in this pack, the advantage isn't just the draft. We know this. We all know this. The advantage is not just a draft, but it's, you might be matching someone's rhythm or you might also, it's the peace of mind knowing I'm going to stay behind this person and they're going, the person's going this fast. So instead of trying to go faster, you suddenly relax and you ski more efficiently. So you're no longer depending on power because why, why apply more power? Because you're, you're not going any faster. And so you change techniques. You change your, your mindset, even when you're skiing. And what I try to do is duplicate that when no one's in front of me. So I'll, I'll do an interval. I do this all the time. I'll do an interval and I'll time it. And actually what I'll do is I'll, I'll do an interval for a set, a number of minutes. And then if I'm doing this, I'll go back to the same start point and then ski differently in my mind, not only physically, but in my mind, and try to go farther without going harder. It's the same nice. thing. That's and, great. And what I try to duplicate is that, like, I, I, you can imagine someone in front of you going that pace that you just went, and can you ski differently, more efficiently? So, for example, what I might have v 2 would a section before, which, created, which required more power, but I'll V1 it. Even though I know I can V2 and I'll V1 it, and, and I'll do it easier and I might go the same speed, but then I'll have more strength for another section, which requires more power Yes, and so on. So uh, this mental game that, that we talk about and that you put so much emphasis on, I love to hear about. If you don't mind me talking too much, I want to say one quick story. Um, my first world junior championships, I didn't know anything from anything, but I, I was trying to figure it out. And number four, was a top finish skier. I didn't know who he was. Um, but I used him for my warm-up. And this was in '85, so it's classic. That it was classic in skate, but that day was classic. And um in his warm-up, he went out of the starting gate in Lake Placid into the woods. And I jumped in behind him because back then there was hardly any course controls. And I skied for him for over a kilometer. And I was pretty comfortable. You know, he was moving on along. And then I jumped out, went to the start. Got, threw my stuff off, jumped in the race and did my race. And I was blown away to find out I was something like 15 seconds behind number four, who was third in the race that day, the guy skied behind and I was like 20 seconds behind him at, at two K's. And I was like, what the heck? And then I realized that the, probably my biggest obstacle wasn't my body, but it was my mind. And the mm-hmm. biggest opportunity for me to improve wasn't my body, but my mind. And you know, I demonstrated that to myself and that was my first world juniors race. So yeah. it was so valuable. So I'm, I'm, I'm listening to everything you're saying and I agree <laughs> with it so deeply.
1: Yeah. It's fun. It makes it really fun because then it's a whole person experience. You know, it's way beyond, like I said, chopping wood, you know, it's, it's like I love skiing because it's, it engages every single part of the human. And um, <clears throat> I've really missed that after that kind of racing, because I haven't found another thing in life that does that. Um, you know, running, you know, is there, I don't know. There's just nothing that's like skiing and um, you, you just bring your whole self to it. And um, so I love to hear your examples because you've been in skiing as long as I have. And um, we, you know, as you get older, you, you have to get a little bit smarter about how to use your energy. Rick
0: Apollo likes to say, ski like a dog. Have you heard him say that before? He said it for decades. <laughs> what he means is not necessarily like, Roar, you know, like a, a you know junkyard dog or something, but like a dog isn't trying to figure out how long he's going to run when he's running or isn't worried too much about some. Of the, it's It's more like the being in your natural element, more of a primal instinct kind of a thing. Yeah. Sometimes we get in our own way when we try to focus and ski and perform another example of this is i did an interview earlier this year with ben lustgarten who skied many world cups and he's been a great skier and he was telling me about his what he considered to be the best ski race he ever did and in that race he said he was focusing purely on the next 10 meters yeah all he was trying to do was figure out how to ski as fast as he could in those 10 meters and he did it hundreds of times throughout the race and um instead of anticipating a big hill or instead of thinking about who knows a problem with this life or something that's going on but just purely focused on skiing those next 10 meters as fast as you could No, there's a there we get in our own way so often mentally especially so uh,
1: that's why yeah that's that's exactly right that's why you bring your whole self to it and um you get in your own self's way a lot. And uh, so working with these young juniors to start out training that be conscious, where is your mind? And it's just like with uh, meditation, you know, your mind can drift. That's okay. You don't beat yourself up. You just come right back to it. And, um, the more conscious you become of where is your mind? Where are your spirits? When you are out there racing, training, and just be more and more conscious uh, and then you can do something about it if you want to. Um, but training that whole thing, uh, and, and like your friend, Ben, um, staying in the moment is so important because, you know, you don't want to start thinking, Oh, you know, I better save a little for that big hill coming up. Uh, you know, you just do what you have to do right then. And, and it'll take care of itself later, but Uh, I remember so many times, you know, in races where you're doing really well, you're winning or something. And then you start thinking, wow, I'm doing really good. And you start thinking and then boom, you're down and you fall. And it's just like, Oh, see, there you go. Thinking again, instead of staying in the process, feeling the technique, feeling the terrain, feeling the skis, feeling your body. If you get into your mind, at least for me, If I stayed there very long, it was over because it was a whole person experience. And if I was in my mind, my whole kinesthetic awareness was turned off too much.
0: Hmm. Let me ask you another question. When you consider all types of skiers, so just generalizing from juniors to leads to masters, what is the most common mistake that you see being made in training? <clears throat> um,
1: well, I I still think uh, from my point of view that we think of this as a hard sport and that you have to work really hard and it's all about how hard people go and, and you know um, <clears throat> and I think that that that's the it's a common mistake in my mind because I think that you could be coming from How much fun can I have out there? How fast can I go? How, how easy can I make this for speed? Um, how much joy can I feel? Um, change it over from, I'm going for a workout to, Hey, I'm going out and having some fun on my skis and I'm going to go fast and, you know, just change the mindset. Uh, and, it's really interesting because you still will get tired. You still will put your whole self into it, but with such a different focus. I remember when I was training, I lived in McCall, Idaho a couple summers and I had a rowing shell there. Um, And I would go out in the mornings, early, early in the mornings and row on the the lake. And uh, it was so peaceful, so beautiful. I would row right along the edge sometimes of the lake and I would see... Deer and raccoons, and you know, it was just so fun. And I get back to the dock and I get out of my boat and I could barely stand up. I'd work so hard, but I never really focused on okay, I'm going for a hard workout. This is gonna. It was more like, I'm gonna just go rowing, it's gonna be so cool, peaceful, this and that. And I so maxed myself out, but my goal was not to max myself out. It was to go out there and have so much fun. And I think that's one of the common mistakes that I see in our sport is we're not out there having as much fun as we can. We're out there working as hard as we can. And I just would like to see the focus more into how much fun can we have and go fast and uh, the work will be there. That's my opinion.
0: I, I like that. I want to make a couple suggestions. So, people who are listening, coaches, athletes, etc. Um, one suggestion is play versus workout. So, I know you. I know you get this. Um, for example, you're doing a, a long, slow distance workout. I don't. I don't know if slow is the the proper thing as we've been emphasizing. But you're doing a long workout, easy workout. Can you? How about saying during the workout. I wonder if I can V2 this gradual climb without working any harder whatsoever. In other words, keep it super light and easy. Like, like go through these exercises. There, it's a type of play. Yes. As compared to just going out, look at your watch and saying, "Okay, I'm going to be done in two hours or whatever." Yeah. But you play and you try things throughout the entire workout. Little, little, like another one would be, I wonder. Uh, try to V2, for example, by staying as high as you can. So very little compression and see what happens. You will yeah. probably go faster. Um, I talked with Gus Schumacher a couple of days ago and he was actually working on staying lower in his technique. So try skiing and thing as low as you can and play yeah. with that. So that's one suggestion. And the second suggestion, which I'd like to hear comments on is something else. I think it's really important and you alluded to this earlier to be able to ski technically in many different ways kind of to expose yourself to tons of different ways of skiing and I think a game that's fun to play, if 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 you watch World Cup skiing very much, and I would assume most juniors, because World Cup skiing is so accessible nowadays, most juniors can, they know how certain people ski. So you're skiing along, and then the coach yells out, or one of the athletes yells out, Teresa Johau. And everyone skis like Teresa Johau. She's got a particular way of skiing, a different body position, a different technique, a tempo. She stays really high. And then someone else yells out, Clayboe, let's say. And then everyone tries to ski like Clayboe, like for example is Ron or whatever, or Rosie Brennan. She's got a very distinct, different technique than pretty much anyone in the World Cup. Um, Jesse Diggins in, in V1 or V2, she's got very distinct techniques I just, uh, and, and you can do the same with the men. Um, but, but if people try to mimic that, they expose themselves to different ways of moving and they become more coordinated, more self-aware, and then yeah. to become better skiers and it's fun. What do you think about that idea?
1: Oh, Ian, it is so fun. That's what I think too, is that anything that makes it more fun and more a game and, and, and more innovative and, and wakes your body up to things and try a lot of stuff. Um, it doesn't matter if it works or not. And it, like you were saying earlier, try it when you're skiing behind people. See what's the most effective and and the fastest. I would say that if you are going to learn a new technique, it's and you think it's you know really effective and everything might take you a while to get it really perfected. So you can't say it's going to work right away or something. But but yeah, play, play, play on your skis. And I think that for our youngest kids, play, play, play. It's and and to bring that real joyful heart. Uh, with you uh even to the hard workouts keep, keep the joy in in yoga you know um because i used to teach it uh, i would always say find your buddha smile even in the hardest yoga yeah uh, when we were in really hard poses or something it's like and it was really hard and it's like okay find your buddha smile so you bring that that joy still and that and that um playfulness and that young heart with you uh I, I think it's great and you know uh real quick I remember watching the Lola Homer Olympics and the guys had done so well there the Norwegians and I watched an interview and the guy asked them why did you what what makes you guys so good why can you do this so well and they said because we love it mm. and I think when you love something you do it with joy And, uh, and you go there to have fun. And, and that I think make, we need to make sure that our young kids all the time, you bring that sense of wonder and joy to, to the racing, to everything you're doing. So I love it that you think about those games to bring to kids and, and, uh, that awareness of, Hey, ski like this, try that. I think they should be trying a million more things. I think our sport is a little bit stuck and not innovative enough. And um, yeah, try more stuff.
0: So, so first up, this wasn't games for kids. This is games that my wife and I do (laughs) together. We love doing it. Uh, Well, you know, we yell some name out, and then we'll start skiing like so and so in an exaggerated fashion, which is actually really fun. And, And oftentimes, we'll say, "Who's this?" (laughs) <laughs> and then everyone, you know, usually there's a few of us and everyone tries to guess and almost always you can guess who it is.
1: Or Isn't that the,
0: cool? The that's person so guessing cool. skis very similarly. So that's really fun. Um, that is but fun. But also there's really a key point. There's, there are, if you look at men or women, the top 20 in the World Cup, very few of them ski the same. Um, I don't want to throw names out and this and that because not, maybe not everyone's as educated or familiar, but but if you just look at the way they ski, there are some fundamental differences in their body position and the, how they interact with the snow and the, if they preload or not if they stay low or come up high in their rhythm it, do the poles hit before their ski lands or after and so on in nordic and, and classic and and skate so um why only learn one way to ski and figure that's it you know and also let's take gus shoemaker gus has got a v2 that he's a he's very deep and he crunches a lot but he stays very deep and uses his legs a lot that's more of a steeper climbing V2, but it has got at least one other V2 for the flats and higher speed sections. Um, the U.S. biathlon coach from a few years ago had something like eight V2s, eight wow. different versions of a V2 that he was teaching to the national team athletes. And, and that might be far too complicated for most people, but the point is there are many ways of skiing very fast. So, yeah, so yeah. have fun with it and explore and get good at different ways until you figure out, which ways naturally suit you the most. And it takes a while to to get that kind of adeptness to develop it. And so, and it's a whole lot of fun developing it. So this is what we're talking about. I love the conversation we're having.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. It is about having fun and and being a kid out there, no matter what age you are and playing those games and just really going out to have some fun and you'll have the workout. Um, You'll have the workout.
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay. So when you coach the, the, formed and coached the wind program, uh, women in Nordic development, one motivation in doing so that you gave was that in your career, you never had a female coach and you wanted to provide that experience for other elite female competitors. So I want to ask you a, a very specific question. Do you have any advice for those of us coaching girls or women that might be different than when coaching boys or men?
1: That is a great question, Ian. I don't think it's asked enough. Uh, I don't think we've thought about the answers enough to that. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know that we have good answers for that, but um, what I would say is that like we, I said a little bit earlier, I always found coaching boys was a lot more simple and that girls can complicate themselves up really quickly um, and, and maybe to help girls mitigate some of the complications inside themselves not not to take them away but to learn to focus on what they're actually doing and and to help them figure out the priorities of what what to focus on uh what to do when they can't focus um, and and you know we, women talk a lot <laughs> women have a lot of words every day compared to a man and i think taking that into consideration you can't do anything about it you're a female you have these certain things going on and you can't not be that but you can train yourself as a young girl to stay with like what your friend ben said what's the next 10 meters like What's the next half a K gonna be? And and so when tr- helping coach these young girls to stay in that spirit and mindset and, and the awareness of the workout that they're doing and not bring every other piece of something that's happened to them in maybe their whole life or that day or whatever uh, to that workout, just, Learn to compartmentalize it a bit more and um, don't be so affected. But it's hard to do as a woman, I totally know. But it's important to do. And um, I think training that in young girls isn't, I don't, I haven't been in coaching real close to it for a long time, but I never saw it really being addressed. If a girl is good at it naturally, she's, she's going to be better. If you're challenged in that way, there, there hasn't been a lot of education or coaching to help a young girl that way. And, and boys, I would say, uh, give them a goal, give them a challenge and, uh, help them access. Uh, the energy to do it. Like, like I told you, I went over to, to uh, Finland and studied with Yuri Hannon on that individual zones of optimal functioning. So <clears throat> we were at the junior nationals, I think it was Alaska. And uh, I was on the radio with Rick and, and the Intermountain boys were winning the relay, but the Alaskans were coming on strong. And uh, Rick uh, asked me on the radio, because I'd just taken that class, and he said, "How do I? How, what do I say to him? How do I motivate him?" And I said, "Make him mad," and uh, because young boys—I mean, if it's a short fuse, it doesn't last a long time. But if you can make a young boy a little bit mad, they access energy like crazy. And so, uh, you know, Rick said something to—it was uh, one of the Collier kids. Um, he said something about that Alaskan wants to take your medal, you know, are you going to let him or something? And um, yeah, Mountain ended up winning, but, but I think that working with the whole person um, coaching, not, not just because, it, okay. So you go out to teach girls who are all emotional about something technique. It's not going to be as effective as if, they were in the right mindset to learn technique. That the zone of optimal functioning of learning technique is not crying about your boyfriend. So, so you know, getting into those right mindsets in coaching before you even go out there and, and learning how to do that, teaching them how to do it, it is a start. It's just the start of how to coach, I think the difference. But anyway, I'm dying boys to, and girls are trying to ask
0: you a question. <laughs> So if that wasn't a boys relay, but a girls relay, what would you have told Rick?
1: Well, it depended on the girls. Girls are much more complicated. And uh, I think much more individual in what their zone works for them. Hmm. But, um, uh, you know, if it would have been say a girl that was a really good skier, but maybe lacked confidence, you could say something like, uh, you are leading, you only have a half a K, you are strong, you can do this. Um, something really encouraging uh, and motivating that you only have half a K to go and you've won this thing. Like affirming. A very affirming, yes. And and anger, it sort of melts them sometimes. Like, oh my God, I'm a puddle. Um, if they're mad, you know, sometimes some girls, so you really have to kind of know the girl or the young female athlete, a lot more than you need to know a boy. There, there are some differences in boys, but anger almost always works with the boy. course, oh. it's a short fuse. Like I said, it won't work for the whole 5k. Although sometimes I've noticed in that individual zones of optimal functioning, even I, I have a friend here who used to ski with me and we go on hikes. And, and she said, you know, my best race was when Marty Hall made me so mad before the race. I couldn't even stand it. I was so mad. And I had the best race of my life. And I said, there's your individual zone of optimal functioning. You got to get into it, honey. You got to get way more into it. You know She was so kicked back, so happy yeah, all yeah, the yeah. time. It's like, no, honey, if you're going to have a good race, you got to, you know, so it get some emotion be, going.
0: It might not be the anger that's serving her. It might be the anger that's distracting her such that she's out of her own way. <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? So there's a, there's, it's a lot more complicated. Like if I'm, my mind works different, you know, we all work differently. If I want to memorize something or if I want to listen, let's say I'm listening to a podcast and I want to remember it and I want to really learn well. If I sit there and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to learn. I'm going to forget three quarters of it because I'm bored yeah. And I, I, I need I need to devote part of my brain to something else and then I'm super focused. So if I'm working on a bicycle and I'm like cleaning it working on the bicycle or working on skis and I'm listening to podcasts, I remember every damn word, but if I'm just sitting there like, okay, I'm going to listen to podcasts, then I'm like distracting myself because I'm bored. It's the same with, I used wow. to listen to a podcast when I was riding my bike. I do uh, even intervals running my bike and I, I, on a mountain bike off the road. And I, 15 years later, I still remember a lot of those podcasts. Whereas if I just sit there, I'm like falling asleep or, you know, I'm like, just cut it out, pay attention, you know? Yeah. And, and I think it's the same with getting your own way, sometimes racing in terms of your focus. If you're some people, if you're distracted by anger, then you're able to concentrate. Whereas exactly. if you're like, okay, concentrate, then you can't concentrate. You know, everyone's got different skills. That's an odd thing.
1: It is, and it's so interesting that you know that you learn the best when your whole body is engaged. It, and yeah. so a lot of boys are like that. Like, you know, in school, we tell them, sit down, be quiet, and learn this. And they're like, they learn a lot better if they're up doing something, moving, and then they can learn it. If they have, if anyway, you're exactly right. And um, the one thing I would say about emotion Emotions, it's about motion. And so different emotions make different motion. And and that's kind of how I look at it is, which ones are the most effective? And a lot of times girls' emotions are not really that effective for what they're trying to do outside of the thing that's causing the emotion. So they go to practice and they're in this weird emotion over something that happened with a friend or something. That emotion isn't good for the motion they're trying to do in
0: skiing. Absolutely. Cool. Well, let's go to the next one. Uh, in 2004, you traveled to Lillehammer, Norway, and competed in the Masters World Cup, which is generally regarded as the Masters World Championship. When the events are in Europe, they are especially competitive. But when held in Norway, they are impossibly competitive. Despite this, you won three golds and a silver. So from someone who clearly knows what advice do you have for master skiers regarding staying healthy, vibrant, and fast?
1: Yeah, those master blasters, they're fun. Um, I really like that saying from Norway that, um, I think it's from Norway. That's where I say it's from. Uh, there's no such thing as overtraining, just under resting. Mm. And, and I think that, I mean, I, that I'm, I love hard training, but I think I was always really good at resting. And, and I think it really helped me. Um, I didn't burn out, uh, very often and, and, uh, I love going into a hard workout session knowing I can do a hard workout session. And if I'm tired, <clears throat> I don't have that same feeling. And I, I really like, uh, to feel certain ways. And, and so, um, I like that. I like to think about that is there's no such thing as hard training, just under resting. So I, and I, I see masters loving this sport so much that um, they're, they're out there just going for it all the time. They don't really even sometimes have enough levels. They don't go level one or, or interval, you know, they're always going interval level and uh, and it's the same concept. No such thing as over, over going fast, just under, There's just undergoing slow. So so I would say just take that concept and make sure that you integrate it into your skiing and into your whole life is, yeah, go for it. Go for it as hard as you want to, but make sure you're ready and rested to do that for the next time. I did an interview
0: with David Norris, who's been our country's top distance skier for most of the past recent years. Um, And he, he said that exact same thing and has that exact same concept um he doesn't worry about overtraining he worries about under recovery under resting exactly that he does some incredibly hard long workouts but he allows himself to absorb the training the effect and then and move on That's a good concept for sure okay um our junior this is a fun question of course our junior and senior national team has been amazing with the junior boys winning the world junior relay the past two years And the junior women also getting bronze and silver. Of course, our elite women especially have been as strong as any other team in the world, which is so exciting. Also, Gus Shoemaker is the number two ranked U23 in the world, and he's got two years left as a 23. What are your thoughts and observations regarding this, uh, what this, let's say, blossoming US team performances?
1: Well, Ian, I don't think I'm alone in saying that it's very emotionally. Uh, it just hits you. It does me anyway. And, I, and I'm, I know other people. It's just so emotionally great that it's hard to put into words. And, you know, it really is. It's, it's just like it brings tears to my eyes when I really think about it. And, and when I think about it very long, I think about, you know, it's been 52 years since the first American women went to the world championships in Czechoslovakia. It's my lifetime. Yeah. And, uh, and to see that progress and to see the culture that's been built during our lifetime. And Ian, you're a big part of it. Like every time I see you in a podcast or, or advertising your things, the toko, yoko, all that stuff, you're always so positive. You're building this, really cool Nordic culture in our country and so many people have gone into this building and so it's 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 just like so emotional to really realize the effort and the what's gone into this what's come into our country through mm-hmm. in this sport and uh you know the sport we can talk about it I mean It's such a cool sport because a little kid can do it. A hundred year old person can do it. There's so many ways to do it. There's so many levels you can do it. And um, it's just so great to have Nordic culture in our country. uh, It's it's community building. It, It builds character. It gets people outside being healthy. So I can't even say how emotional I get when I think about where we are now compared to where we were when I was a kid. Um, so it, it's just so awesome and, and so fulfilling uh, to watch it all and to be even just a small part, which so many people are part of it. And um, I'm just grateful for everyone's efforts. And it's just lovely.
0: My Many of my skis in recent years have been with my daughter Pearl. I go out with my wife a lot too, but Pearl, I'm kind of a training partner a lot of time. And uh, she's now in in college. She just left. So, um, but one thing that you were talking about how great the sport is. I probably said to her fifty times. We're out there just skimming along and you know through the trees and gliding and together. And I just I probably said to her fifty times. Man, isn't this such an incredible sport? I mean, I just feel that constantly. Um, it is a unique and amazing sport it's not just the sport itself and the gliding you know through the woods at a high speed with not working that hard but it's the whole lifestyle too that I really love I really love it and um the culture that we've built as a nation I'm I'm really proud of you and I have seen a transformation in the United States that have been profound when you started skiing there was very little expertise in our country Now we have an army, literally an army of um, high quality coaches working in clubs surrounded by strong populations of uh, Nordic skiers who are generally well coached and progressing at a level that we have never seen as a nation. I'd love to hear observations regarding this. I mean, can contrast the sport 50 years ago in the United States or 40 or 30 years ago to now where Mm -hmm. we have even small clubs have full time salaried coaches. That are, are working on their coaches' education and they're they're excellent coaches. And you know, we really have, it's a we're 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 pretty darn close to a Nordic nation, in the areas of the United States that have consistent snow. We're getting there.
1: Isn't it fun? It is yeah. just so fun. And um I, you know, watching that progression from when I first was on airplanes and I would have the jacket with us ski team and i'd be sitting by some guy and he says oh you're on the us ski team i said yep cross country and they're like oh cross country and uh, you know it wasn't highly thought of and and people didn't even know what it was like some people would say oh you do that and some would say what you ski across the country like they didn't even get it at all <laughs> and um and and <clears throat> i was so in love with it but It wasn't well received to be something fun and something cool to do, and like we were talking about, let's keep the fun in this because people really still need to see that it's not just a lot of work. You can work as hard as you want, but it's a lot of fun. So, so yes, um, you know, being one of the Nordic nations now in one generation, you know, our lifetime it's pretty remarkable really. And it, and it, to me, it shows just like the possibilities of people when they set their mind to something and, um, you know, watching all these good coaches, all these good programs, like now, you know, I'm spending a lot of time in Montana Bozeman area and, you know, to watch the coaches and, and how many kids are in these programs, they have to, turn kids away in the, in the young kids programs because they don't have the room on the courses for it. Um, it's just blowing open. I think, especially with COVID, but, but, um, everybody can do this sport and at different levels and, um, you can learn from it and have so much fun. So I don't know. I, I think that, um, it's just, just so great and so remarkable. And I'm just a really, glad to have been a part in the beginning to watch it through my life. And I can go tomorrow to heaven and be happy that Nordic is in the US.
0: (laughs) Okay, I've got three more questions for you. All three of them I think are, well, could be profound. The first one, what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you were 18 years old? Keep in mind, when, when, uh, when Allison was 18 years old, she had already competed in the Senior World Championships in Czechoslovakia, and she was about to compete in the Olympics in Sapporo. So, you know, uh, <laughs> I guess it's a little different from some people <laughs> nowadays, but but I'd love to hear your answer to that question.
1: Well, I've thought about that a lot, well, a little bit, Ian, and, and kind of as a joke, I thought I'd say, how much time do you have? Because. There's a lot of things I wish I would have known at 18 uh, that I that I think I know now. So I don't think we have time to go over it all, but I could yeah. pick a couple of highlights. And um, one is what you kind of just touched on is that I wish I would have realized at that age how young I was for what I was doing because I, I can... I loved it. I loved making those teams. It's what I wanted. But I never really felt like I was good enough. And um, because I'd get to Europe, I'd race, I'd be in, you know, 30th. And like, I'm a racer. I don't want to get 30th. And I wish I would have known that I was going to do it for a long time. This was setting the groundwork for it, be patient. Um, I'm just getting started. It's a, and I knew it was a good start and everything. Cause I was getting to see the best in the world, but it, it's really hard when you're you, when you want to be successful to get bad results. And I wish I could have seen that I was a junior and I, and I could be going in junior races and I probably would have, I would have done fine because I went in two junior races when I was in your, in Scandinavia and I got first in one and second in one. And so as a junior over there, I was doing fine, but I wish I would have known that. Okay. You're doing fine. And just don't look at the result page right now. You know, just, just, just ski and feel, how does that feel and how are you feeling? Where can you get better? And I wish I would have known that I was doing, doing well for, My age or whatever, and for being an American woman who we don't have the culture and we don't have the coaching, we don't have the support, and uh, I think we did really a great job lacking all those things. So you can go back in time now
0: and you know time travel to yourself when you were 18. That's what you would say. You'd say, "Hey, you're doing better than you think you are. You're you're young and." be patient with yourself and something along those lines that, you know, is that some more or less what you
1: yes. say, it, say it yes. in a
0: sentence, tell yourself. in yes. a sentence.
1: Yes. I think I would, I would say you're into this for the long haul. Look at Keegan, you know, I think to master something, to really master something takes 10,000 hours. It takes a long time. And, and, uh, especially coming from where we were, I would say to myself now, you're into this for the long haul. Be patient. You can make your goals. Believe in it. Keep going. Don't be satisfied. Be frustrated, but with patience. And um, that's what I would say is, is these 18-year-olds who want to be something, it's going to take a while.
0: Super. Okay. If What is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out?
1: I'm a plant whisperer.
0: Can you elaborate on that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Plants and me get along so well. I love plants. They love me. I have such a green thumb. Um, Every plant I have blooms. Um, I just have an energy with plants. And, uh, And so I'm the plant whisperer.
0: Cool. That's awesome.
1: That's really
0: great. So lastly, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words?
1: I've always liked that Henry Ford quote That's that says, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we just officially broke the record of the uh, TOCO interviews for the time spent, which is great because I think every minute of this has been very worthwhile. Um, I wanted to thank you, Allison, for the journey that you have taken for breaking through walls and paving the way for future skiers. Congratulations on a great ski racing and coaching career. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today and to share your life and opinions with me and the skiing public. I don't know when, but I hope to see you around sometime soon.
1: Thanks, Ian. I really, really appreciate your understanding of what my skiing was and my coaching. And I say the same thing to you. Thank you for everything you bring to our sport. (laughs)
0: Thanks a lot.